Welcome now to Culture at Work on the Business Radio Network, presented by Crest Insurance with host Matt Nelson. All right. Well, welcome everybody to today's episode of Culture at Work in Tucson, proudly presented by Crest Insurance Group. This is a show where we learn from and celebrate the local leaders, businesses, and nonprofit organizations who have stood the test of Tucson time. I'm your host, Matt Nelson of Crest Insurance Group, and I'm joined here at Tucson Business Radio X Studios in person today, which is uh, which is exciting. It's the first uh, in-person episode we've had really since uh, since February, so very excited to be back in studio here with um, my colleague, Mike McGee of uh, Crest Insurance. Mike is uh, vice president and producer over in our property and casualty department, and we're here this month to talk about the value of community and how that relates to workplace culture. Uh, so Mike is a United States Marine, um, formerly formerly served as a United States That's Marine, correct. but is always a Marine. Um, he's also served as a wildland hotshot and hell attack firefighter before moving into risk management, consulting, and procurement for some large healthcare institutions, including Tucson's own Tucson Medical Center, and then up in northern Arizona at the Kingman Regional Medical Center. And then uh, that finally led to his uh, current role at Crest Insurance Group. So in addition to his studies at the University of Arizona, it's a fine institution. It's, excellent, it's excellent like university. Second or third best university in the, in the state. <laughs> Um, Mike holds uh, an associate of risk management and uh, charter property and casualty underwriter designations as well yes. within the industry. So with that, thank you, Mike, so much for joining us. It's, it's truly a pleasure to have you on Happy the show. Happy to be here. So, you know, as thinking, about, thinking about this show and, and really what's going on around us, you know, we're continuing to work as a community, as a, as a state, as a country through mm-hmm. a really challenging year. Um, just all the way across the board. And, and I think perhaps nothing has become more apparent uh, than the value of the ties that we share with one another. So with the threat of COVID and, and the sweeping responses to it around the world, our connections to family members mm-hmm. separated by geography, our connections to our colleagues in the workplace, um, our children and, and the other parents that, um, you know, that, are, that, are connect, that we're connected to through our schools, and really within all of our respective places in the community and the communities where we live, these have all been tested. And, and perhaps I think the degree to which we may have taken them for granted have been made very apparent. I would agree. And, you know, because of this, I really want to take this month to think about how communities form, how they survive challenges, and, and really how they become part of our behavior, how that, that mm-hmm. idea of community is normalized in, in our behavior and how we interact. So I think your experience as a Marine, which I think amongst, um, and I say this as an Army guy, amongst all of the, the military services, the Marines have um, one of the probably most developed communities around. I mean, it's, it's apparent yes. just in the description, right? It's where yes. once, once a Marine, always a Marine. And that is... That's unique, right, amongst all of the military services. Um, but I think I'm curious to see if you've seen parallels also in your firefighting positions, you know, whether it's oh, yes. just firefighter in general or with the more tactical wildland firefighting and things like that. So can you tell a little bit about that? Yeah, the, the culture in the Marine Corps is unique. Um, I think it's, you know, it's, it's world, world known. Um, the, their processes and team building and, and, and sense of you're, you're in it with your buddy. And uh, that you are a community and you fight as a team and you go to war as a team. Uh, very similar um, vibe and sense of community in the wildland firefighter community. 
um, you have a, a, a group of folks that, that like to serve their, their, the public as a wildland firefighter, vast majority of these fires are on federal lands or state lands, so you're serving, you're serving a, a sense larger than yourself. But in order to do that service, you need your, your, uh, your team around you, your crew. And that just tightly knits folks together and you just sort of uh, find yourself in that sort of sub-community. And in, even within in the, in the Forest Service, there were former military folks that were on these crews. And the Rangers and the Army folks were together and the Marines were together. And, um, but we all became wildland firefighters. And it was uh, very tight-knit. Still to this day, I'm, I'm part of uh, the community. I still have friends that are uh, uh, still with the Forest Service. And to this day, both Marines and with the firefighting, um, strong sense of community. So I want to come back a little bit to Tucson specifically in a minute, but for the people who are listening, who I think pretty much everybody knows, you know, what a, what a Marine is, or at least has an idea of what a Marine yeah. is, I think we'll, we can dive a little bit deeper into beyond the surface layer, uh, because I think that's where the, the concept of community and, and presence lies. But probably not everybody understands what a smoke, you know, the difference between a smoke jumper, a regular firefighter, a hell attack firefighter. Can you, can you shed a little light into that? So there's generally two categories of firefighters. I'll refer to them as type one and type two. And type one firefighters um, uh, attack out of control wildfires. A type two firefighter will come in after a a fire is, is more controlled and do mop up. So a hotshot is a consistent, it's a type one hand crew. It's a 20 person hand crew that will be assigned to areas of fires that are out of control and they work to get them under control by putting in mainly hand line which is direct removal of fuel in front of the fire and then you scrape down to bare mineral soil around that fire in theory if the fire is small enough you're basically doing a circle around the fire a smoke jumper is uh is similar to a hot shot he's a type one firefighter but they usually work in pairs and as the name suggests, they parachute into an uncontrolled small wildfire. Um, I, I never, I, I considered smoke jumping. Um, it's it's a tough it's a tough uh, area to get into um, in the wildland community. Um, very few um, slots available and a very tough selection process. Um, that said, uh, Hell Attack is a similar um, approach to, to wildland firefighting, where you use a helicopter to arrive at a s- smaller, out-of-control, usually very small fire that you can either land and get out with you and another person and attack that fire, or you can rappel into the, into the area um, and, and put out a smaller fire. When those on the helica- helicopters and in smoke jumping, if those get bigger and the fire gets a little more out of control, you get more into a logistical support role where you cut larger spots using chainsaws and hand tools, and then you start shuttling in hotshot crews mainly to start get that fire under control. And then you're also working in coordination with the air attack folks and to drop uh, tankers and, w- and buckets that we all saw during the Bighorn Fire all over the Catalinas. Everybody's working together as a team, and uh, that's where the community comes in, in, in involved because you're in a, a dangerous situation that you need to rely on folks to make sure that you you and your buddies get out safely. And that's sort of what um, sort of led to the community forming, I think, in a general sense. Um, my father worked for the Forest Service for over 30 years, and I saw fire um, firefighting evolve into a professional career, where in the past, in the 70s and the 
in the 80s, you took range conservationists and wildlife biologists and, oh, hey, we have a fire. Let's go fight this fire. Whereas now you have dedicated fire management officers and fire personnel that are on a 24-7, 360-day job description. And it developed into a community of its own in, in my lifetime. So, and, and probably, you know, again, this year more than any other, I think uh, our audience has probably, especially in Tucson, um, been exposed to really wildland firefighting as a, yeah. as a concept, right? I mean, it's one of those things where, you know, uh, starting with the Bighorn Fire here, certainly, I mean, watching, you know, and this is guy coming from a military aviation background, right? Um, seeing, uh, you know, fully loaded 737s coming in and... At, up, at 600 feet off the ground. Exactly. Coming up Push Ridge, which I've hiked, and that is, um, I mean... Hiking, the winds that are unpredictable. There's, you know, the proximity to the earth, everything like that. I mean, you're so when you're hell attack. I mean, you're fighting a lot of those same types of challenges, right? To, for insertion into a fire, uh, in, into a fire situation where your team is, like you said, it's like two or three people. I mean, it's it's a very small crew. It could be that you're you and inserting. another person. Um, yeah, and in the bigger fires, you'll we, we will go into areas that you can't get to on foot. And then you'll have what they call a spike camp, where you'll have maybe two or three hotshot crews, and then a hell attack crew that's that is um, managing a hell of spot that's that's flying in water and food and, and, and firefighting gear for the uh, for the bigger crew that's that's working to get the the fire under control. And you're probably seeing that sort of operation all over the the West Coast in the moment. Um, but again, it speaks to uh, you can't put these fires out without a good solid team. And in the community that formed around wildland firefighting is one of the strongest I've ever seen uh, outside of the, the Marine Corps. I mean, you could just see in the tragedy of the Yarnell fire several years ago where an entire crew was killed. Um, the whole community of the, the local town um, responded to that. And to this day, you see um, dedications and memorials to the Yarnell fire and lessons learned. That it that the current fire uh, wildland community goes through on a, uh, an annual basis. So to give people an idea of um, kind of the scope, I mean, I think you know we see we see the pictures out of California, mm -hmm. of course, which have been horrifying. Um, you know, now that Mount Lemmon is open up, uh, you can go up Mount Lemmon, yeah. you can see the aftermath, of course, of of the burns and and knowing that these are still kind of part of an overall process. That that I mean, it's a, it, there's a natural element to this, right? Um, oh yeah, but. Given people an idea of the scope of the task that you walk into when you've got a wildfire, a wildland fire that has to be controlled, if, if, if a fire was one acre, right, and you've got a clear hand line, which, like you said, is, you, is a team coming in of, if you're a hotshot crew, about 20 people from what I understand, and you're coming in, you've got to chainsaw down the trees, you've got to dig out vegetation bushes, so on and so forth, and then with literally shovels, rakes, and axes, you have to dig down to bare soil bare minimum mineral soil is a technical term and depending on where you are fighting fires so like in the pacific northwest you can be digging and digging in what you think is dirt but in really it's just plant material that will still burn so um and then alaska is a whole different animal together when you have tundra and um and areas where you can dig several inches if not a foot deep to get down to that bare mineral soil because mineral soil won't burn so that, that that's generally generally the idea but the, one of the biggest things is driving the fires and the and the severity and the impact of these fires is what they used to call the urban interface, and it's the amount of people that are living literally in the woods or really close to the woods. And Southern California is a perfect example of that, where um, you see these fires get out of control, 
uh, fast. It's, it's dry. It's hot and dry. And then they butt up right against major subdivisions. And so it went from um, a mentality when I, and with my father, when he was in there and, and early on in my career, where we were, you know, protecting wildernesses and um, trees and the public's access to public lands, where now we are sort of herding these fires around structures and that the, the fires are getting much, much bigger and there's less focus on trying to protect timber and other natural resources and more focus on protecting structures and, and property. And I believe there wasn't a single structure lost on the Bighorn Fire. So when you talk about a hand line, how, how wide is this? It depends on the fuel type. And the, by fuel type, I mean what is burning. So if you're on a grass fire, your, um, your hand line could be a foot, two feet long. If you're in big timber, it's thick brush, uh, trees, you might need a, 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 a slightly wider hand line. Um, Florida, completely also a different area of firefighting. Well, you can fight fires in swamps where there's literally water and the, and the fire's burning on top of the water. Sometimes hand line doesn't work there. You need dozers to put in line. And when you're doing that, so you've got a, you've got a and bulldo- bulldozers, I think. Right, yeah, and and so you've got to encircle this. So I mean, we're talking, you know, if it's something where it's like a ten acre fire, I mean, you're digging miles. It takes weeks to get these fires under control. Hotshot crews, generally speaking, work fourteen days on and two days off. Um, a lot of them are, are college students, so they're motivated to get in as many hours as they can before they go back to school. But a lot of that's changing now, where this can be a full time, very lucrative position uh, career for folks. Um, it is physically demanding, to say the least, uh, and um, requires a lot of experience being out outdoors. You need to be able to read a map. You need to be able to see to um, look at terrain and, and, and assess, can my crew get from A to B, where the operations officers wants us to put this hand line, without completely um, wearing themselves out. We need to be able to do it again tomorrow. So the, you have to grow leaders in the wildland community, and you have to bring in the new folks. And again, that I think also speaks to where the community comes in, where the um, the leaders in the wildland firefighter community know that they have to bring in and grow new folks, so so that they can replace them down, up the chain. One of the areas I saw this very um, specifically is in the area of safety officers, and uh, as you it could you could infer, a safety officer needs to be very very experienced, and certain type one safety officers where they can be um, team safety officers on the very, very large fires, there's probably only a handful of those in the country. And a lot of them in, are, are literally retired Forest Service folks or BLM folks that may or may not be able to walk around a fire line anymore. So um, th- that's one of the areas where the community identifies needs. And then and, and I know uh, are, are actively working on um, filling those needs. So I know when when we've when I envision, you know, the the Marine Corps, and I think about like I think about my own experience going through Army basic training. Like one of the, so one of the things uh, as you as you kind of graduate from basic training, at least where I went, mm-hmm. Fort Benning, um, in Georgia, you know, you come um, to your graduation field, and your graduation field is uh, it's actually it's a really cool experience because you literally you come out of the woods and you got smoke grenades yeah. and all the other stuff. It's yeah. very very dramatic, right? Yes. And um, but. So you come and you step onto this field, and as you're walking, you're walking over these um, bronze um, placards, essentially, that are identifying that the turf that you're walking on each section of this parade field, the turf is from a different area of the world where there has been, the Army has been present in some form of conflict, right? And so the idea behind it is, is you're walking across this kind of hallowed ground 
of the people who have come before you, the, the bigger thing that you're a part of. And I know at least personally, that was one of the most, that was one of the moments that really cemented into my mind kind of the, what I felt like the significance of what I was walking into, what I was becoming a part oh, oh, of. Oh, yeah. Right. And so I, the Marine Corps has, you know, something similar, I would have to imagine. Could you tell a little bit about how that indoctrination process kind of builds that community? So your very first day when you arrive at recruit training, whether you're at Paris Island or in San Diego, you arrive at night, you get off the bus, and you are immediately put onto a set of painted yellow footprints that get you in two lines. And you're told that every Marine before you has stood on these footprints before they went into recruit training. Uh, you go through this all the same doors, and um, you are, are no longer to refer to yourself in the first person. It's all um, these recruits, and you're talking in the third person. It, there's no I anymore. And for folks that haven't done it, 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 it's hard to articulate the impact that has on you that you are joining a community that is, in, in the Marine Corps' case, older than the country, and that you are going through the exact same process that every other Marine did before you. And right from the get-go, it is just ingrained that you're, you're in it together. You are um, upholding a tradition that is very long and storied and, um, and hasn't changed, that it, you're still doing the same thing that the Marines in World War II and Korea and Vietnam did. So, and I think of, you know, like the firefighting community I know is, is fairly entrenched in tradition and the importance of kind of connection and history and, and community. So do you see those same, uh, maybe rituals isn't the right word, but maybe it is the right word, th those things that reinforce that notion of this kind of longitudinal history that you are joining, this stream that you're now a part of? Very much so. I see it, there's similarities. Now, granted, the military is different than, than the Forest Service, but it's team building. It is... Um, it's a shared sense of responsibility. It's um, patriotism. And both organizations, both communities, um, I think probably wrote the book on how to build coherent, successful teams. And, you know, in, in both military and with firefighting, it's dangerous. So if, if your team and your community is not tight-knit and not looking out for each other, um, you know, bad things can happen. And so, and I think you really hit on something there, which is probably a perfect segue to talk about, you know, Tucson. Um, so because you've got some sort of a unifying element, right? There's some sort of a core that unifies. And in the case of the military and, and firefighting, it's this necessity for a community because of the austerity of the situation, the interconnectedness and, and dependence really that each member has upon one another because mm -hmm. of some sort of outside threat, right? Which we think historically, I mean, that's the basis of how communities like a city would start, mm -hmm. right? Is you would you would get this kind of nucleus in the center and you'd build walls around it because of the threats to the outside world. And because you were contained by these walls, you had to depend on one another for the exactly. things that you need to survive, right? So if we if we go all the way out to the macro level here and think about Tucson as a community, I guess first and foremost, you know, I know you I know you went to the U of A. So so why Tucson? What 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 made you choose the U of A? What made you choose Tucson? Well, my father had had finished his uh, final uh, job with the Forest Service in Tucson, so that there's a little little bit of that. But I've always been a fan of the West. I like I like the Western mentality. I guess the way to, to say it, I, I Tucson specifically is just big enough, but not too big. I, I love the weather, I love the scenery, um, and I, I, I like the people here. I like the community in Tucson. And the, even in Tucson, is it, it, it's, it's, it's different than Phoenix. 
and it's it's Tucson. But then there's areas of Tucson that even get a little sub-communities, east side, south side, Marana, south Tucson. Um, they're all very, very unique in their own way, and they're, um, it's just it's a community that when I got here, I knew I liked it, and I have no plans leaving it. I agree. I, you know, so I, I didn't grow up here, right? I mean, the, the joke I always say is I, I grew up somewhere about 93 miles, 92, 93 miles north of here and went to school up there before coming down here for grad school. But, um, you know, the, the, the funny story, and it really ties to community, that I always tell when people ask me to describe Tucson um, is, uh, you know, I'm coming down the I-10. And um, full disclosure, my, my little brother, the, the, the smarter of the two brothers, and my little sister, the smartest of the family, um, but my little brother went uh, went to the University of Arizona before he actually did the opposite and went to grad okay. school up in up in Phoenix. And um, so I'm driving down the I-10, and uh, you know, at the the first time I came to Tucson that I can really remember that I was like driving myself. Um, you know, it, it was uh, there was about when you start to see lots of stickers popping up at the back oh, yeah. of people's vehicles, right? Most of them up in Phoenix, in my experience anyways, were, you know, some variant of Calvin and, and you know, <laughs> that yeah. sort of thing. Um, but, you know, so I'm coming down the 10, and I hit um, really the at the time the, the outermost extent of Tucson, which was Ina Road at the time. Mm-hmm. Um, and I start seeing all of these green stickers, these green flowers on the back of cars that say, Be Kind. And um, I, at first foremost i'm wondering you know what is this thing this is interesting um and you know as i get down here i have come to realize that oh this is this ben's bells project it's mm-hmm. a it's a, a local community nonprofit that is built around this idea of kindness and and being kind to one another and and out of this kind of respect for the fact that we are all connected and we share this community and i didn't think much of it at the time but in the years since that i've been here i've been in tucson since 05 um it really serves, at least to me, as, a, as an interesting object lesson about you wouldn't expect that a community of people would be running around putting stickers of your local nonprofit on the back of their cars, right? No. That's, that's not, you wouldn't drive into L.A. and expect to see that, right? Um, and yet it happens here. I've even seen the be kind stickers in people's email signatures. Absolutely, I love that's one of my favorite things. I mean, I'm I'm an, I'm an avid cyclist. I'll drive around town, and and the Ben's Bells organization hides bells around town. And so the instruction, of course, when you come across one, is you know you pass that kindness on to somebody. And they've yep. got the little ones that are tokens. I, I just it's it's such an amazing bellwether. I think is probably the word that I would use, or the the, the canary that kind of gives you some insight as to what makes Tucson or one of the things that makes Tucson unique. And so that for me, that, that is the most evocative story. When people ask me how I describe Tucson, that's, that's the story I always use to describe it. In addition to the natural beauty we're surrounded by and everything like that, is there something similar to you or does that kind of, I think that, that, um, that, I think that describes Tucson very aptly. Um, it's a little bit like Austin too. You know, the Austin used to have that keep Austin weird Right bumper stickers, um, and not that Tucson's weird, but it's just that it's a um, it's a community um, of its own, of its own unique feel. Be kind. I mean, I didn't expect. It took me a little. I was like, "What are they asking? What's going on here?" And then I looked in more to it. Um, folks at, at Tucson Medical Center and in, in Kingman and my healthcare past had had it in their signature lines, and and then we do the fundraising piece of it too. And and I think it speaks to the to the type of uh, um, of folks that you find living in in Tucson, 
Yeah, you know, it's funny that you, that you mentioned TMC because I believe, um, actually, yes, T- TMC is the first uh, Ben's Bell that I ever received. It was That's a little a, token. It was a little be yeah. kind token, but I got it uh, when I was at a meeting at TMC, which, again, you know, I mean, Tucson Medical Center being our local community hospital, um, you know, as some as as basically basically a nucleus for our community. It's just uh, again, it, it has a symmetry to it that that that's what my first that was my first Ben's Bell interaction. And and over the years, and while working there, um, people are proud of and they they um, promote the fact that they were born at TMC, and that their parents were born at TMC, and that they plan to have their children at TMC. Um, TMC delivered almost six thousand babies a year. And I, I was just always surprised I'd had a TMC badge on at an ATM, and just folks would say, hey, I was born there. Right. Stay, stay independent. Right, right. But it's a very Tucson yeah. thing right there for certain. Yeah, well, right. So, so last month, and this is I, – actually, I really love that these topics ended up kind of getting to, to run against one another. But so last month, um, I had on a good friend of mine, and we were talking about um, humility and caring for your team as, uh, as a hallmark of leadership um, – but I think, you know, that humility and caring for your team or caring for your, for your fellow person is really kind of a hallmark of community, right? I mean, mm-hmm. that's, that's what you base a community on. And so I, I recall from my time in the Army, when I was going through leadership training, it was really drilled into us that probably the most important dynamic of building a team is really being disciplined and intentional on taking care of your soldiers, and so just at, at, a, at, a, at a micro level, what did that look like to you in the Marines and then in the firefighting world where you're, same thing, I mean, you're dealing with hazards all around? Yes, it was just drilled into us that, you know, your, your team is there to, to complete the mission. If your team's not successful, it's not fed, it's not happy, you're not going to complete the mission. I remember very vividly a scenario where we were all very, very cold, and we got in trouble for being too cold. And so they, we had to do some... Uh, exercises to get the body heat up but the the message that was drilled into you was if you are hypothermic you're not going to be able to complete your mission similar with the forest service if you are um working uh very hard assignments and you're not taking into account that you're the folks that are operating the, the chainsaws have been doing that for two solid days um you're not going to be able to do it again for the next week and if so the leaders of the Hotshot crews and the firefighters are, are constantly um, aware of the fatigue level of their crew, and it is up to the leadership to take care of the crew so that the overall bigger picture can be met. And um, I saw that both in both the military and in the Forest Service. I think you actually hit on something really interesting there, too. Um, so there's a, there's a concept. There's a, a, another podcast, actually, that I listened to that I really enjoy. It's a former Navy SEAL. His name Jocko Willink. Oh, yeah. And um, so he talks about this concept of extreme ownership, right? Mm-hmm. Extreme ownership, I've heard it described as radical responsibility. But, but essentially, the idea is in any situation as a, as a leader, whether you're a leader at the team level or maybe you're responsible for four other soldiers, subordinate, whatever it is— um, you're responsible for other to the you know to the to the squad level where it's a larger number of people to the platoon level to the company level so on and so forth but the idea is, is that e- at each level what you're looking for in any situation where something doesn't work the way you want it to is you're looking for a way to pull the responsibility for making sure that doesn't happen again onto yourself and so it's like um, an example would be if somebody hadn't taken the time to sit down and and eat their you know eat their MRE mm-hmm. right um, and so they were hungry and they were fatigued, and because of that, they weren't at you know peak peak operating yep. 
um, posture or whatever, that that you know at some level, yeah, there's an individual responsibility that, responsibility there where you're like, hey, look, you've you've got a like you've got an MRE, you've got to sit down and eat it. But then you sit down as a leader and you say, all right, what did I do that created a situation where this person either maybe didn't have an MRE or felt like they didn't have time to eat it? Or did I, did I mess up on the scheduling when we were setting up our overwatch and things like that? And so the idea basically is contrary to the trend of finding a place to shift responsibility to say, no, I did my job and somebody else messed up to say, nope, you know what? I could have done my job better and I'm going to seek out ways to identify that. Can you think of a specific situation in, in either the Marine or the wildland community where that, that type of thing happens, that type of a dynamic happens? I just remember, it, it's probably cliche, but in both the Marines and in firefighting, you know, there were no bad teams, they're just bad leaders. And uh, your MRE thing is, is a perfect example of, you know, if you're not fueled up, if you're not eating, if you're not sleeping, you're not going to be able to continue on either in whichever the team, is, whichever scenario is military or, or, or firefighting. And I, I know Jocko's podcast, and that guy's an exceedingly impressive individual. And he 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 said on more than one occasion that um, you know his success as a team leader was his ability to motivate his team and to communicate the bigger picture. And I think that's where leaders um, need to tell their team what the what the main goals are. A lot of times, leaders may keep stuff close to the vest. Um, that if if the if the bigger um, picture isn't clearly communicated to everybody, you will not complete your mission. You will not be successful. And I think communication is probably one of the best things a leader can do. So it really speaks to like from a community perspective, that communication, that identification of purpose again. I mean, that seems to be the reinforcing be concept. Kind. Right. Be kind. Right. What's our purpose? Well, so um, we're at uh, the bottom half of the hour here. So for those of you just joining us, this is Culture at Work in Tucson, proudly presented by Crest Insurance. Uh, as the largest locally owned and operated insurance brokerage in southern Arizona and one of the top 100 insurance agencies in the United States, Crest is your hometown broker to assist with commercial insurance, workers' compensation, and employee health insurance plans. Crest is headquartered in Tucson, Arizona, with offices in Scottsdale, Flagstaff, Sierra Vista, San Diego, Denver, and Fort Collins. So I'm your host, Matt Nelson, and now back to our conversation with Mike McGee, Vice President, Crest Insurance. So your career took a pretty significant turn. When you traded in, you know, your uniform and your Pulaski X for for a corporate environment, right? And um, so I think it's a it's a pretty understandable transition from a why did you go into risk management? Mm. Um, but I'm curious at what that transition was like from public service and let's just say it out front, fairly adrenaline heavy fields um, to the corporate world. What 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 were what were the things that motivated you to make that jump? Um, a lot of just general life after college and looking for jobs in Tucson and, and sort of thing. Um, I, I initially started at a company called First Magnus in their loss mitigation department. First Magnus was a mortgage broker, and uh, I was in right before the um, un, un, unfortunate events in the housing market. Um, led me to uh, the, the position uh, with the consulting firm and, and getting into risk management. Um, it just sort of fit me like a glove personality wise. I'm a little bit of a worrier. I like uh, attention to detail, a uh, planning that you learned that I learned in the military and, and, and with firefighting, um, sort of, it fits the risk management process to a T, you know, I, um, analyze, assess your exposures, put a plan in place to address those exposures and then monitor the results and adjust as needed. Um, it's what we did in the Marine Corps. It's what I did in, in firefighting. 
uh, it's the way I approached um, college uh, after the military. Um, I did most of my firefighting while as a college student, as a seasonal firefighter. Um, risk management wasn't something I sought out, but it seemed to just fit me like a glove based on my, my, my past uh, career and then just my personality in general. And then, so working on a consulting basis and then eventually you, you become a part of the hospital teams. So mm -hmm. I think there's, a, there's an important distinction between, you know, a community hospital and, you know, one of the, one of the larger hospital conglomerates, mm -hmm. right? Um, because, you know, it seems like there's, I mean, there, there are standards of care, but then there are ties to communities. So mm -hmm. can you describe a little bit about what it means to be part of a community hospital team? versus uh, any other risk oh, yeah. management in healthcare. Well, both of the my main accounts I worked on were what were community-based nonprofit healthcare systems and the boards consisted of community leaders. So you were you were managed to some degree and the the tone and the mission was set by the community. Um, very very tight margins and and the leadership both at TMC and in, at Kingman um, their decisions were based on how it would affect the community. Where if you go in a for-profit, a banner, a Kaiser, a bigger um, organization like that, you have sh shareholders, you have profits to to think about. So the, the um, although your healthcare providers are very altruistic and are healers and are there to help the community in, in, in a global sense, a, a non-profit community-based hospital it was a big, big difference between a for-profit healthcare system and. Uh, I think I would I would say that there's probably results are slightly different versus a, a for-profit healthcare versus nonprofit. I can't cite any studies, but, <laughs> but my gut tells me that the outcomes are are better in your community-based nonprofits. Well, and it seems like, and you, and you really brought it up, I think, with um, you know TMC is a great example. I mean, it started out uh, primarily as a as a as a maternity hospital, from what I understand. I, I think initially in 1929, I believe, is the and it was a tuberculosis okay. place. And um, folks would come out to, to um, recover from TB. And then, yes, it, it, it is really, really known for um, uh, pediatric services and, and maternity and delivering babies. Which, which I think kind of speaks to, and you really said it earlier on, which is that people, you would wear your badge and people would identify this is, you know, like this is a fixture in the community. I was born there. This is my story. This is how my story started in Tucson. So as you think about institutions, I mean, like, hospitals, schools, mm -hmm. right? Like we do, we describe um, our high school alma mater. It's mm -hmm. one of those things where it's like everybody goes through it, right? But I mean, that's one of the questions when you come to Tucson is, you know, did you go to CDO? Did yep. you go to South Point? That sort of thing. Um, and it's interesting to me that, you know, something like a hospital, which, you know, a lot of people might look at and say, this is just a, this is just a mechanism by which I got some services. Given the right environment, it becomes a community nexus, right? Where it's oh, yeah. like people's stories begin there. Um, can you think about any other, like, again, you know, uh, in the in the military, it's, uh, did, did you go through MCRE, uh, MCRD? Did you go through Paris Island? When you look at your experience in, you know, in the military community, in the Tucson community, I mean, do you see others? Is there a parallel, for example, like with where you're at now with Crest? I mean, you know, not not to lead too much, but but really, honestly, I mean, what drew you to Crest from, you know, from being outside of the organization as a consultant, not related to Crest at all? So uh, Crest had a very similar culture and vibe to my consulting firm, Ashton Tiffany. Um, very um, a, a fun but professional environment and outstanding 
reputation, fiscally responsible, um, and successful. And it just, it, I, I got a very good sense of team and, uh, well, community of, of Crest. It wasn't I was coming to X broker. It was I was coming to Crest. And I, that just drew, drew me, uh, aside from the opportunity, um, it just felt like it, it fit me. And then as we think about, um, you know, from, through the lens of risk management, right? So um, in a healthcare environment, you've got hundreds of layers of risk management that you've oh, got yeah. to deal with, from the structural to the actual practice of medicine, infectious disease control, people slipping and falling on the walkways going around the hospital. Um, and so, so you're looking at this, you know, from 30,000 feet, all the way down to the granular level. How do we prevent these incidents from happening? Where where are they happening? How are they happening? What systemic changes can we make? Um, which, from an analytics perspective, I mean, I think you can almost domicile that in, in a very small group of people. But mm -hmm. adoption of the lessons that you learn and, and commu communication and adoption of the what's happening, why is it happening, why does it matter that it's happening, all the way down from the C-level to the newest employee on the job in an organization that size, how do, how do you establish that level of community kind of buy-in in an organization like that? Uh, healthcare and hospitals could be slightly unique in that sense in that I bet you, and, and in both my cases, they had what was referred to as a, a captive insurance company, which is just very, very formal self-insurance. So you basically had a very large deductible for every kind of claim. So the organization itself had a lot of skin in the game. So there was a lot of motivation to reduce your, your, your losses, reduce your claims. Um, when we did have a bad claim or a bad outcome, it was communicated to the staff in what they called a closed claim review. So they would go into an, uh, into an auditorium and they would, you know, sanitize all names and all that good stuff. But then they would ex they would talk about what happened, what went wrong, and lessons learned, and 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 the reasons why um, this is important. And then so we would go on and do it again. So everybody was brought into the to 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 a little bit of the the claims process, not just your attorneys in the C-suite level. And and it was just you know a bad line on a, a financial report. It was communicated to the staff in general, um, be, for primary reasons, so they didn't want it to happen again, and and B, they want to reduce their claims because because they have a, a self insurance uh, component and a lot and a lot of skin in the game, and they want to communicate it out to the team, in in a larger sense, and I I saw that especially in uh, in in cases involving children that it helped um, with the staff recover from a bad outcome, it, a lot of the stuff that you can imagine can be very emotionally um, uh, hard to deal with. And, and communicating that and, and, and approaching it as a community and as a team, um, I think helped a lot of the, the staff survive probably uh, scenarios that I think probably could end or, or make people rethink their careers to some degree. And in terms of kind of normalizing that as part of the tradition and routine, right? So, you know, it's, uh, again, you can you can call people into an auditorium, but the question is how do you, you know, on day two, after you get out of the auditorium, what behaviors are, are put in place? I think of um, small, small things like, um, well, again, and, and I hate to draw almost exclusively from the military well, but the, the examples there are fantastic. Mm -hmm. um, you know, the idea of a salute. 
mm-hmm. right? Like, why do you salute? You can you can walk up and you can say hello with respect to somebody that's in a position of command just as easily as you could salute. Um, but there's this routine practice that you do that, that serves as a reminder of the discipline and, and normalizes mm-hmm. the behavior around you, right? And I think about, you know, I mean, we've got, there's a civilian equivalent, it's the handshake, although now um, we live, bump. yeah, we live in a world where some of these things have been taken away from us. So can you think about other things like in either the, and, and perhaps the fire, the firefighting example would almost be even, even better because it is one of those things where the, you know, a firefighting group is, it's still an assembly of people who, they're not bound by a four-year contract like you are in no. the military, where it's like, hey, look, you're going to do this, or yeah. bad things are going to happen, and you can't get out for a period of time, right? Yeah, we're Whereas, legally obligated to be here. Right. Whereas, you know, as a, as a firefighter, I mean, you can you can decide mm-hmm. on, on a given day, hey, look, you know, like, after I get out of the woods here, this is it. I'm done. So can you think about, you know, like anything small like that that you've that you saw that was that was that was effective that was part of your kind of ritualization to kind of reinforce that notion of community as a firefighter it wasn't as overt as a salute but you would see firefighters wear their team or their crew hat out routinely you'd see bumper stickers of the you know the globe hot shots on the back of cars coming out of globe you uh, would trade shirts with other teams very similar like a soccer match where mm-hmm. everybody would change your shirt um, I haven't seen it much anymore. It's been a little while, but there were even T-shirts that you'd get from fires. Like, there's probably a Bighorn Fire T-shirt right. that um, you would see another firefighter wear, and then you'd come, hey, I was on that fire, too. Where were you? Oh, we were on the north edge of it. Oh, it was, that was pretty tough. Heard about that. So you'd see a lot of, that's the way that I saw in the fire community, um, that sort of respect given no, how are you? Hey, I saw you. You were there too. Hey, you're a hot shot. Oh, you're on the engine crew, or you're a smoke jumper, um, or a, an air tanker driver, or uh, 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 an air attack person. They would wear their badges or their 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 names out, and or rather their um, logoing out in an area that you probably wouldn't see other professions do. And then it would sort of draw us draw us all together. So in a sense, it seems like there was there was like a like a visible token that yeah. that instilled a sense of pride. Oh yeah, very much so. In in, to this in the community, to this right? Day. And that's that's something that again, I I you know, looking at the Ben's Bell sticker, I mean, that's I think that's one of the reasons that it really stood out to me so much is that there was this this visible token of people I mean, can, can, I can't think of a community that would be more loosely tied together than just hey, I happen to like this concept of being kind. I happen to like this local nonprofit. And yet there was a real like obviously you're gonna you're gonna carry that around. There yeah, were people that were gonna yeah it's tangible. You know there was yep. a tangible element of community, um, and yeah I agree with you 100 percent that things like that. I mean they give you something to remind you and something to talk about um, when you meet other people and yep. and you can say I'm part of this. This is something that I'm I'm part of and and I'm gonna carry that forward. It seems to be a critical part of. I guess strengthening, or, or in some cases, unfortunately today, kind of rebuilding the idea of a bond um, with the people around you. Um, so, I guess the the last thing I really wanted to talk to you about, um, and it and it parlays into community, um, and really from our conversations before we started recording, mm-hmm. you know, your love of the outdoors, um, is this idea of stewardship. Right. And so stewardship in terms, I mean, as you know, as a, as a wildland firefighter, of course, 
when we say stewardship, and I know you're a, a hunter and mm-hmm. an outdoorsman, um, you know, we talk about this idea of preserving and taking care of something that is around us, right, mm-hmm. that we rely on. Um, and I think almost you can, you can again, back that out to the macro level, and, and I think about um, community as something that we are responsible as a group for stewarding. Because, uh, again, oh, yeah. it's it's easy to take it for granted. Pre-COVID, I think it was extremely easy to take our connections for granted and not realize that those are those are lands that needed to be taken care of. So in terms of stewardship, um, can, you, can you talk a little bit about that as somebody who is responsible for it at a tangible level, and then maybe we can talk about it in the community level? I, well, um, hunting, uh, the hunting community were some of the first conservationists to begin with. I mean, you go back to Teddy Roosevelt. He formed some of the first national parks. Um, Hunters, Ducks Unlimited, the Rocky Mountain Elk Foundation, those organizations exist to conserve public lands, wild lands, wildernesses for future um, hunting and and public use. Um, That's stewardship 101 right there. And I think hunters can get a little bit of a bad rap to some degree. but they are very, very aware of the impact, environmental impact on um, areas such like mining. Um, they're very aware of the impact of fires on their ability to um, get into areas that they want to hunt. And they're very, very aware of, the, of political changes and regulatory changes. And they have a great sense of stewardship of the public lands. Um, uh, a lot of, lot of, lot of Forest Service folks are hunters as well. It, it sort of goes hand in glove with being the love of the outdoors in general, and we always, always, always had a sense of, uh, of responsibility. You pick up your trash. You don't, you don't leave a bad um, campfire ring that is hard to um, remove because you're taking care of the land. And I saw, I see, I've seen that my entire life growing up in Idaho and Wyoming working in the Forest Service and all my years of hunting is a, is a great, great sense of stewardship um, from the hunting community uh, for the public lands and for access to those public lands. And I think, and I haven't, um, I don't think I've ever said this on the podcast, but, you know, when, when I was looking at um, the decision to come over to Crest, uh, you know, I, I knew the agency uh, mm-hmm. and, I, you know, I'd competed against them for a number of years. Um, but for me, Probably the defining conversation I had um, was when I was I was talking with you know the founder Cody Ritchie, mm-hmm. and you know was really trying to get a feel for what makes this person tick, right? What makes this person tick? What why 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 do you have this business? And he said it was it was one sentence, and it was one of those things. That the more I thought about it, the more significant it was. And and so he said um, the way that I've always approached this business is. Um, if we do well, we will do good. And to me, that was that was one of those stewardship moments. And and really, I, I the word stewardship, I wouldn't originally have tied to it really until our conversation today. But this notion of um, in the business community, mm-hmm. right? Like if if we have a business in Tucson, if I have a nonprofit in Tucson, whatever it is, um, we all play some part in this notion of stewardship for our community. Um, and that's one of those things that, uh, I think oftentimes, you know, when, when somebody, somebody do- donates some money or donates some time or donates some of their talent, 
You know, it's one of those things that, uh, like, we, we talk about, but I, I think we almost talk about it in isolation sometimes to our detriment without realizing that these are all threads of a fabric that's being kind of pulled together that defines our community. And every now and again, something will pop out and we'll say, oh, man, you know, that's, it's cool that all those stickers are on the back of the car. Um, but at the same time, a lot of the things go unsung. And I can tell you, at least for, for me, that was, that was, for me, the moment when I realized, okay, this is a place, this is a community that I can be a part of at, at Crest and, and the larger Tucson community as a whole. Um, and I, I just, um, getting a chance or finding a way to make those types of things more ritualized and, and more mm-hmm. tokenized so that mm-hmm. we see them and we recognize what they are just seems like such a great initiative um, as a community to get behind, to reinforce the fact that we are all connected, even in this really weird time that we live in. <laughs> no, I, I couldn't agree with you more. It was one of the reasons that also attracted me to Crest. It, it, it speaks to the culture and community of Crest, that if we do well, we do good. Whereas you, a lot of folks, I'm going to do good, and I don't care if we're doing the right thing. Um, Cody preaches that with our clients, that we're going to do the right thing. And in the end, we'll be doing good. Um, it's the same thing with uh, uh, a business owner in, in Tucson. If you are a good steward of your community, of your business, you will do good. And I, I think it's, it's just, again, I think it's a good mindset to have. It speaks to Cody's character. And uh, it was it, it's, it, it's one of the reasons why I'm proud to be with Crest. I agree. I agree. Well, um, you know, as we come to a close, Mike, I just want to say thank you so much for joining. Absolutely. I really appreciate it to our audience listening. Thank you so much for your time and joining us for another month. We look forward to talking with you again soon. Culture at Work in Tucson, this is Matt Nelson. Have a great rest of your day. Join Matt for another interesting Culture at Work podcast right here on TucsonBusinessRadioX.com. 